Chapter Eight of Contending Forces by Pauline E. Hopkins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight: The Sewing Circle, where village statesmen talked with looks profound, imagination fondly stoops to trace the parlor splendors of that festive place. Yes, let the rich deride, the proud disdain these simple blessings of the lowly train. To me, more dear. One native charm than all the gloss of art, Goldsmith. Ma Smith was a member of the church referred to in the last chapter, the most prominent one of color in New England. It was situated in the heart of the West End, and was a very valuable piece of property. Every winter, this church gave many entertainments to aid in paying off the mortgage, which at this time amounted to about eight thousand dollars. Mrs. Smith, as the chairman of the board of stewardesses, was inaugurating a fair, one that should eclipse anything of similar nature ever attempted by the colored people, and numerous sewing circles were being held among the members all over the city. Parlor entertainments, where an admission fee of ten cents was collected from every patron, were also greatly in vogue, and the money thus obtained was put into a fund to defray the expense of purchasing eatables and decorations, and paying for the printing of tickets, circulars, etc., for the fair. The strongest forces of the colored people in the vicinity were to combine and lend their aid in making a supreme effort to clear this magnificent property. Boston contains a number of well-to-do families of color whose tax bills show a most comfortable return each year to the city treasury. Strange as it may seem, these well-to-do people, in goodly numbers, distribute themselves and their children among the various Episcopal churches with which the city abounds, the government of which holds out the welcome hand to the brother in black, who is drawn to unite his fortunes with the members of this particular denomination. It may be true that the beautiful ritual of the church is responsible in some measure for this. Colored people are nothing if not beauty lovers. And for such a people, the grandeur of the service has great attractions. But in justice to this church, one must acknowledge that it has been instrumental in doing much toward helping this race to help itself, along the lines of brotherly interest. These people were well represented within the precincts of Mrs. Smith's pretty parlor one afternoon, all desirous of lending their aid to help along the great project, as we have said. Mrs. Smith occupied the back parlor of the house as her chamber, and within this room the matrons had assembled to take charge of the cutting out of different garments. And here too the sewing machine was placed ready for use. In the parlor proper, all the young ladies were seated, ready to perform any service which might be required of them in the way of putting garments together. By two o'clock, all the members of the sewing circle were in their places. The parlor was crowded. Mrs. Willis, the brilliant widow of a bright Negro politician, had charge of the girls, and after the sewing had been given out, the first business of the meeting was to go over events of interest to the Negro race which had transpired during the week throughout the country. These facts had been previously tabulated upon a blackboard, which was placed upon an easel and occupied a conspicuous position in the room. Each one was supposed to contribute anything of interest that she had read or heard in that time for the benefit of all. After these points had been gone over, Mrs. Willis gave a talk upon some topic of interest. At six o'clock, tea was to be served in the kitchen, 
the company taking refreshment in squads of five. At eight o'clock all unfinished work would be folded and packed away in the convenient little Boston bag to be finished at home, and the male friends of the various ladies were expected to put in an appearance. Music and recitations were to be enjoyed for two hours, ice-cream and cake being sold for the benefit of the cause. Mrs. Willis was a good example of a class of women of color that came into existence at the close of the Civil War. She was not a rara avis, but one of many possibilities which the future will develop from among the colored women of New England. Every city or town from Maine to New York has its Mrs. Willis. Keen in her analysis of human nature, most people realized, after a short acquaintance, in which they ran the gamut of emotions from strong attraction to repulsion, that she had sifted them thoroughly, while they had gained nothing in return. Shrewd in business matters, many a subtle businessman had been worsted by her apparent womanly weakness and charming simplicity. With little money, she yet contrived to live in quiet elegance, even including the little journeys from place to place, so adroitly managed as to increase her influence at home and her fame abroad. Well-read and thoroughly conversant with all current topics, she impressed one as having been liberally educated and polished by travel, whereas a high school course more than covered all her opportunities. Even today it is erroneously believed that all racial development among colored people has taken place since emancipation. It is impossible of belief for some that little circles of educated men and women of color have existed since the Revolutionary War. Some of these people were born free, some have lost the memory of servitude in the dim past, a greater number by far were recruited from the energetic slaves of the South who toiled when they should have slept for the money that purchased their freedom, or else they boldly took the rights which man denied. Mrs. Willis was one from among these classes. The history of her descent could not be traced, but somewhere, somehow, a strain of white blood had filtered through the African stream. At sixty-odd she was vigorous, well-preserved, broad and comfortable in appearance, with an aureole of white hair crowning a pleasant face. She had loved her husband with a love ambitious for his advancement, his foot on the stairs mounting to the two-room tenement which constituted their home in the early years of married life, had sent a thrill to her very heart as she sat sewing baby clothes for the always expected addition to the family. But twenty years make a difference in all our lives. It brought many changes to the colored people of New England, social and business changes. Politics had become the open sesame for the ambitious Negro. A seat in the legislature, then, was not a dream to this man, urged by the loving woman behind him. Other offices of trust were quickly offered him when his worth became known. He grasped his opportunity, grew richer, more polished, less social, and the family broadened out and overflowed from old familiar West End environments across the River Charles into the aristocratic suburbs of Cambridge. Death comes to us all. Money, the sinews of living and social standing, she did not possess upon her husband's death. Therefore she was forced to begin a weary pilgrimage, a hunt for the means to help her breast the social tide. 
The best opening, she decided after looking carefully about her, was in the great cause of the evolution of true womanhood in the work of the woman question as embodied in marriage and suffrage. She could talk dashingly on many themes for which she had received much applause in bygone days, when in private life she had held forth in the drawing-room of some back-bay philanthropist who sought to use her talents as an attraction for a worthy charitable object, the discovery of a rare species of versatility in the negro character being a sure drawing-card. It was her boast that she had made the fortunes of her family and settled her children well in life. The advancement of the colored woman should be the new problem in the woman question that should float her upon its tide into the prosperity she desired. And she succeeded well in her plans. Conceived in selfishness, they yet bore glorious fruit in the formation of clubs of colored women banded together for charity, for study, for every reason under God's glorious heavens that can better the condition of mankind. Trivialities are not to be despised. Inborn love implanted in a woman's heart for a luxurious, aesthetic home life, running on well-oiled wheels amid flowers, sunshine, books, and priceless pamphlets, easy chairs and French gowns, may be the means of developing a Paderewski or freeing a race from servitude. It was amusing to watch the way in which she governed societies and held her position. In her hands committees were as wax, and loud murmurings against the tyranny of her rule died down to judicious whispers. If a vote went contrary to her desires, it was in her absence. Thus she became the pivot about which all the social and intellectual life of the colored people of her section revolved. No one had yet been found with the temerity to contest her position, which, like the title of nobility, bade fair to descend to her children. It was thought that she might be eclipsed by the younger and more brilliant women students on the strength of their alma mater, but she still held her own by sheer force of will-power and indomitable pluck. The subject of the talk at this meeting was the place which the virtuous woman occupies in upbuilding a race. After a few explanatory remarks, Mrs. Willis said, I am particularly anxious that you should think upon this matter seriously, because of its intrinsic value to all of us as race-women. I am not less anxious because you represent the coming factors of our race. Shortly you must fill the positions now occupied by your mothers, and it will rest with you and your children to refute the charges brought against us as to our moral irresponsibility and the low moral standard maintained by us in comparison with other races. Did I understand you to say that the negro woman in her native state is truly a virtuous woman? asked Sappho, who had been very silent during the bustle attending the opening of the meeting. Travellers tell us that the native African woman is impregnable in her virtue, replied Mrs. Willis. "'So we have sacrificed that attribute in order to acquire civilization,' chimed in Dora. "'No, not sacrificed, but pushed one side by the force of circumstances. Let us thank God that it is an essential attribute peculiar to us, a racial characteristic which is slumbering but not lost,' replied Mrs. Willis. "'But let us not forget the definition of virtue.' 
strength to do the right thing under all temptations. Our ideas of virtue are too narrow. We confine them to that conduct which is ruled by our animal passions alone. It goes deeper than that. General excellence in every duty of life is what we may call virtue. Do you think, then, that Negro women will be held responsible for all the lack of virtue that is being laid to their charge to-day? I mean, do you think that God will hold us responsible for the illegitimacy with which our race has been obliged, as it were, to flood the world? asked Sappho. I believe that we shall not be held responsible for wrongs which we have unconsciously committed, or which we have committed under compulsion. We are virtuous or non-virtuous only when we have a choice under temptation. We cannot by any means apply the word to a little child who has never been exposed to temptation, nor to the Supreme Being who cannot be tempted with evil. So with the African brought to these shores against his will, the state of morality which implies will-power on his part does not exist, therefore he is not a responsible being. The sin and its punishment lies with the person consciously false to his knowledge of right. From this we deduce the truism that the civility of no race is perfect, whilst another race is degraded. I shall never forget my feelings, chimed in Anna Stevens, a school-teacher of a very studious temperament, at certain remarks made by the Reverend John Thomas at one of his noonday lectures in the temple. He was speaking on different races, and had in his vigorous style been sweeping his audience with him at a high elevation of thought which was dazzling to the faculties, and almost impossible to follow in some points. Suddenly he touched upon the negro, and with impressive gesture and lowered voice thanked God that the mulatto race was dying out, because it was a mongrel mixture which combined the worst elements of two races. Lo, the poor mulatto! despised by the blacks of his own race, scorned by the whites. Let him go out and hang himself. In her indignation Anna forgot the scissors, and bit her thread off viciously with her little white teeth. Mrs. Willis smiled as she said calmly, My dear Anna, I would not worry about the fate of the mulatto, for the fate of the mulatto will be the fate of the entire race. Did you never think that to-day the black race on this continent has developed into a race of mulattoes? Why, Mrs. Willis came in a chorus of voices. Yes, continued Mrs. Willis, still smiling. It is an incontrovertible truth that there is no such thing as an unmixed black on the American continent. Just bear in mind that we cannot tell by a person's complexion whether he be dark or light in blood, for by the working of the natural laws the white father and black mother produce the mulatto offspring. The black father and the white mother the mulatto offspring also, while the black father and quadroon mother produce the black child, which to the eye alone is a child of unmixed black blood. I will venture to say that out of a hundred apparently pure black men, not one will be able to trace an unmixed flow of African blood since landing upon these shores. What an unhappy example of the frailty of all human intellects, when such a man and scholar as Dr. Thomas could so far allow his prejudices to dominate his better judgment, 
as to add one straw to the burden which is popularly supposed to rest upon the unhappy mulattoes of a despised race, finished the lady, with a dangerous flash of her large dark eyes. Mrs. Willis, said Dora, with a scornful little laugh, I am not unhappy, and I am a mulatto. I just enjoy my life, and I don't want to die before my time comes either. There are lots of good things left on earth to be enjoyed even by mulattoes, and I want my share. Yes, my dear, and I hope you may all live and take comfort in the proper joys of your lives. While we are all content to accept life and enjoy it along the lines which God has laid down for us as individuals as well as a race, we shall be happy and get the best out of life. Now, let me close this talk by asking you to remember one maxim written of your race by a good man. Happiness and social position are not to be gained by pushing. Let the world, by its need of us along certain lines, and our intrinsic fitness for these lines, push us into the niche which God has prepared for us. So shall our lives be beautified and our race raised in the civilization of the future, as we grow away from all these prejudices which have been the instruments of our advancement, according to the intention, from an all-seeing omnipotence, from the beginning. Never mind our poverty, ignorance, and the slights and injuries which we bear at the hands of a higher race. With the thought ever before us of what the Master suffered to raise all humanity to its present degree of prosperity and intelligence, let us cultivate, while we go about our daily tasks, no matter how inferior they may seem to us, beauty of the soul and mind, which, being transmitted to our children by the law of heredity, shall improve the race by eliminating immorality from our midst and raising morality and virtue to their true place. Thirty-five years of liberty have made us a new people. The marks of servitude and oppression are dropping slowly from us. Let us hasten the transformation of the body by the nobility of the soul. For of the soul the body form doth take, for soul is form, and doth the body make, quoted Dora. Yes, said Mrs. Willis with a smile. That is the idea exactly, and well expressed. Now I hope that through the coming week you will think of what we have talked about this afternoon, for it is of the very first importance to all people, but particularly to so young folks. Sappho, who had been thoughtfully embroidering pansies on white linen, now leaned back in her chair for a moment and said, Mrs. Willis, there is one thing which puzzles me. How are we to overcome the nature which is given us? I mean, how can we eliminate passion from our lives, and emerge into the purity which marked the life of Christ? So many of us desire purity and think to have found it, but in a moment of passion, or under the pressure of circumstances which we cannot control, we commit some horrid sin, and the taint of it sticks and will not leave us, and we grow to loathe ourselves." Passion, my dear Miss Clark, is a state in which the will lies dormant, and all other desires become subservient to one. Enthusiasm for any one object or duty may become a passion. I believe that in some degree passion may be beneficial, but we must guard ourselves against a sinful growth of any appetite. 
All work, of whatever character, as I look at it, needs a certain amount of absorbing interest to become successful, and it is here that the Christian life gains its greatest glory in teaching us how to keep ourselves from abusing any of our human attributes. We are not held responsible for compulsory sin, only for the sin that is pleasant to our thoughts and palatable to our appetites. All desires and hope with which we are endowed are good in the sight of God, only it is left for us to discover their right uses. Do I cover your ground? Yes and no, replied Sappho. But perhaps at some future time you will be good enough to talk with me personally upon this subject. Dear child, sit here by me. It is a blessing to look at you. Beauty like yours is inspiring. You seem to be troubled. What is it? If I can comfort or strengthen, it is all I ask. She pressed the girl's hand in hers and drew her into a secluded corner. For a moment the floodgates of suppressed feeling flew open in the girl's heart, and she longed to lean her head on that motherly breast and unburden her sorrows there. Mrs. Willis, I am troubled greatly, she said at length. I am so sorry. Tell me, my love, what it is all about. Just as the barriers of Sappho's reserve seemed about to be swept away, there followed almost instantly a wave of repulsion toward this woman and her effusiveness, so forced and insincere. Sappho was very impressionable, and yielded readily to the influence which fell like a cold shadow between them. She drew back as from an abyss suddenly beheld stretching before her. On second thoughts, I think I ought to correct my remarks. It is not really trouble, but more a desire to confirm me in my own ideas. Well, if you feel you are right, dear girl, stand for the uplifting of the race and womanhood. Do not shrink from duty. It was simply a thought raised by your remarks on morality. I once knew a woman who had sinned. No one in the community in which she lived knew it but herself. She married a man who would have despised her had he known her story, but, as it is, she is looked upon as a pattern of virtue for all women. "'And then what?' asked Mrs. Willis, with a searching glance at the fair face beside her. "'Ought she not to have told her husband before marriage? Was it not her duty to have thrown herself upon his clemency?' "'I think not,' replied Mrs. Willis dryly. "'See here, my dear.' I am a practical woman of the world, and I think your young woman built wiser than she knew. I am of the opinion that most men are like the lower animals in many things. They don't always know what is for their best good. If the husband had been left to himself, he probably would not have married the one woman in the world best fitted to be his wife. I think in her case she did her duty. Ah, that word duty! "'What is our duty?' queried the girl, with a sad droop to the sensitive mouth. "'It is so hard to know our duty. "'We are told that all hidden things shall be revealed. "'Must repented and atoned-for sin rise at last to be our curse?' "'Here is a point, dear girl. "'God does not look upon the constitution of sin as we do. "'His judgment is not ours. "'Ours is finite. "'His infinite.' Your duty is not to be morbid, 
thinking these thoughts that have puzzled older heads than yours. Your duty is, also, to be happy and bright for the good of those about you. Just blossom like the flowers, have faith and trust. At this point the entrance of the men made an interruption, and Mrs. Willis disappeared in a crowd of other matrons. Sappho was impressed in spite of herself by the woman's words. She sat buried in deep thought. There was evidently more in this woman than appeared upon the surface. With all the centuries of civilization and culture that have come into this grand old world, no man has yet been found able to trace the windings of God's inscrutable ways. There are men and women whose seeming uselessness fit perfectly into the warp and woof of destiny's web. All things work together for good. Supper being over, the elderly people began to leave. It was understood that after nine o'clock the night belonged to the young people. A committee had been formed from among them to plan for their enjoyment, and they consulted with Ma Smith in the kitchen as to the best plan of procedure. "'The case is this,' said the chairman, who was also the church chorister. "'Ma Smith has bought four gallons of ice-cream to be sold for the benefit of this fair. It's got to go, and it rests with us to devise ways and means of getting rid of it.' "'Get up a dance,' suggested Sam Washington, a young fellow who was the life of all social functions. "'Dance!' exclaimed Ma Smith. "'Not in this house!' The choir-master surreptitiously kicked Sam on the shins, as he said soothingly, "'Under the circumstances I see no other way, as we've got to sell the cream, and there's no harm in dancing anyway.' "'You ain't going to object to our dancing, are you, Ma?' "'It's all old fogeyism about dancing being a sin,' chimed in Sam. "'Oh, but my son, I've been a church member over thirty years, a consistent Christian, and I never was up before the board for behavior unbecoming a professor. Think of the disgrace on me if the church took it up,' she expostulated tearfully. "'Look here, Ma, the deacons and ministers are all fooling you. "'It's the style for church members to go to the theatre and the circus, "'to balls and everything you can mention. "'Why, I've seen our own pastor up to see the black crook, "'and laughing like all possessed at the sights. Fact!' "'Why, Samuel,' said Ma Smith, "'how can you stand there and tell me such awful stories?' "'Not a bit of a story,' declared the brazen-faced Sam." "'It's as true as gospel. "'I'll find out what seat the minister gets next June "'when the circus comes into town, "'and I'll get a seat for you right behind him. "'If you've never been to the circus, Ma, "'and to see the seven-headed lady and the dancing mokes, "'you ought to go as soon as possible. "'Think of the fun you're missing.' "'Oh!' groaned the good woman in holy horror. "'How you do go on!' "'But that ain't nothing to the ice-cream,' continued Sam, "'and them girls in there have got to be warmed up, "'or the cream will be left, "'and there won't be a thing doing when the committee calls for the money.' "'That's so,' replied Ma Smith, "'beginning to weaken in her opposition. "'Well, mother,' said Will, "'who had been an amused listener to the dialogue, "'we'll have the dance, and it shall be my dance for my company. "'No one shall trouble you. "'You will have nothing to do with it.' "'Well,' "'If you say so, Willie, it's all right,' replied his mother with a fond smile. "'You are master in this house.' In the meantime the furniture in the parlours had been moved out by the other members of the committee, 
and in one corner a set of whist players were enjoying themselves at ten cents a head for a thirty-minute game, which ended at the stroke of a small silver bell, their places being taken by others. Already it was getting very warm in the crowded rooms. The doors leading to the entry had been thrown open, and couples were finding seats in convenient nooks, waiting for dancing to begin. The girls were thinking of ice-cream. Reverend Tommy James gravitated toward Mrs. Davis's corner. She had not gone out with the other matrons. "'I enjoy a real good time as much as anybody, children,' she said. "'And when it comes to dancing, you can't lose your Aunt Hannah.' The Reverend Tommy was always at his ease with Mrs. Davis. She led him along paths which caused him no embarrassment. He knew that she looked up to him because of his education and his clerical dignity. On his side, he admired her rugged common sense, which put him at his ease, and banished the last atom of his ladylike bashfulness. Early in the winter he had been brought to realize the nature of his feeling for Mrs. Davis by seeing Brother Silas Ham, recently left a widower, and having ten children, making a decided stampede in the widow's direction. Reverend Tommy was grieved. To be sure, she was old enough to be his mother, but she had many good points to be considered. She was a good worker, experienced in married life and ways of making a man comfortable. Then her savings must be considered. When Tommy reached this last point, he always felt sure that she was the most desirable woman in the world for a young minister. He felt hopeful to-night because he had seen Brother Ham and his bride in church the Sunday before. Mrs. Davis opened the conversation by speaking of the bride and groom. "'Ham and his bride looked mighty comfortable in church, didn't they?' "'He did. I'm glad he's settled again. It's not good for a man to be alone.' "'Deed, I'm glad, too.' "'You—well—well, well, I'm real glad to hear you say it.' "'What for?' asked the widow coyly, looking down and playing with her fan. "'I—I I didn't know how you and Brother Ham stood.' "'Stood? Well, I never.' "'I thought Brother Ham had been trying to get you,' whispered Tommy, sitting closer and putting his arm across the back of her chair. "'Law, sirs, Mr. Jeems, how nervous you does make me. Do take your arm away. Everybody'll be a-lookin' at you, honey. I'm surprised at your thinkin' I'd look at Ham and all them chillin'. Massy knows what the woman he's got's gwine to do with him but she looked so mild and smiling that Tommy went into the seventh heaven of delight and so lost his head that when he heard the call, "'Another couple wanted here!' he took Mrs. Davis on his arm and stood upon the floor, forgetful of the fact that he was within a few months of his ordination. A good-natured matron not connected with the church had volunteered to supply the lack of an orchestra. Waltzing was soon in full blast and the demand on the ice-cream cans was filling Ma Smith's heart with joy, tempered with inward stings of conscience and fear of the steward's board. Dora was dancing assiduously and eating ice-cream at John's expense, he meantime saying that if she kept on she would turn into a frozen dainty to say nothing of a frost in his pocket-book. Dora declared that it was for the good of the cause, and he'd just got to stand it. She was wildly happy because of the tender familiarity between her brother and her friend. 
a long-stemmed rose that Will wore in his buttonhole had been transferred to Sappho's corsage. Dora smiled as she caught the half-puzzled, half-wondering expression on her mother's face. It was approaching twelve o'clock when it was proposed to wind up the festivities with the good old Virginie reel. Sam Washington was the caller, and did his work with the fancy touch peculiar to a poetic southern temperament. He was shrewd and good-natured, and a bit of a wag. He knew all the secret signs of the ladies and their attendant swains. A lively girl whom everyone called Ginny remarked to Sam, referring to the fact that Sam was on probation, "'Your class leader won't recommend you to the board for membership after tonight.' "'Now, Ginny,' replied Sam, stopping in his business of arranging couples, "'don't make yourself obnoxious bringing up unpleasant subjects. I'll take my medicine like a man when the time comes, but I'd bust show if I didn't get loose tonight. I'm in good company, too,' he grinned nodding toward Reverend Tommy and Mrs. Davis, who were just taking their places on the floor. "'If this is good for Tommy, it's good enough for me.' All reserve was broken down in the instant the familiar strains of the Virginia reel were heard. The dance was soon in full swing, and up and down, dead and earnest, seeking for a good time, and a determination to have it if it was to be got. It was a vehement, rhythmic thump, thump, thumpity-thump, with a great stamping of the feet and cutting of the pigeon-wing. Sam had provided himself with the lively Jinny for a partner, and was cutting grotesque juba figures in the pauses of the music, to the delight of the company. His partner, in wild vivacity, fairly vied with him in his efforts at doing the hoe-down and the heel-and-toe. Not to be outdone, the Reverend Tommy James and Mrs. Davis scored great hits in cutting pigeon-wings and reviving forgotten beauties of the walk-round. Tommy allowed he hadn't enjoyed himself so much since he'd came up north. "'Yes,' said Sam, "'this beats the cake-walk all holler. Now then, one more turn and we're done. Forward on the head, balance your partner, swing the next gent, swing that lady.' Now swing your rose, your pretty rose, your yaller rose of Texas. All promenade. Everybody declared it had been a wonderful evening. Thank the Lord it's over, said Ma Smith to Mrs. Sarah Ann White, who was helping her in the kitchen. Well, said the latter, pausing in her work with her arms akimbo, such sights as I've seen tonight I never would have believed. Ophelia Davis, what ought to be a mother in Jerusalem, kicking up her heels in your parlor like a colt in a cornfield, and that Tommy Jeems, no more fitting for a minister than a sucking babe, a traipsin' after her like a bald-headed rooster. End of chapter 8